Hello everybody and many thanks for joining us for this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd, I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart and I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Andrew Chapman who is joining us from the British Heart Foundation Centre for Cardiovascular Science at the University of Edinburgh. And Andrew has recently written a very comprehensive review in Heart with the co-authors Philip Adamson and Nicholas Mills all about troponin. This is a controversial uh, position paper, and I'm delighted we've been able to get Andrew on the podcast to discuss it. Andrew, many thanks for joining us today. No problem. Good morning, James. Andrew, I think first of all for the for the podcast audience, would you mind going through the five different types of myocardial infarction mentioned in the latest guidelines, and also perhaps mention myocardial injury as well? No problem at all. So. The concept of different subtypes of myocardial infarction was first introduced in the second definition of myocardial infarction in 2007. And in the most recent third universal definition published in 2012, this persisted. Type 1 myocardial infarction is defined as spontaneous myocardial infarction. And that's related to ischemia due to a primary coronary event such as plaque erosion, plaque rupture or dissection. Type 2 myocardial infarction is more controversial and is said to occur secondary to ischemia due to either increased oxygen demand or decreased supply in the context of another acute illness. Type 3 myocardial infarction is associated with sudden unexpected cardiac death, often with symptoms suggestive of myocardial ischemia. And type 4 myocardial infarction is related to percutaneous coronary intervention or stent thrombosis. Finally, type 5 myocardial infarction is associated with cardiac surgery. The concept of myocardial injury is slightly more challenging in that we now recognise patients may have elevated cardiac troponin concentrations in the absence of any symptoms or signs of myocardial ischemia. And in this situation, we would say that a myocardial injury had taken place and there are a variety of causes, some of which we've illustrated in our table 1 in the review. Okay, and just to take it back to the basic level once more, the, the mechanisms of troponin release into the circulation, because this is a, an intramyocardial uh, enzyme, isn't it? How does it get out into the bloodstream? Well, there's a number of suggested mechanisms for the release of cardiac troponin, um, which, as you say, is a predominantly intracellular protein. We think around 90 to 95% of the troponin is intracellular, and approximately 5% is present within the cytosol. Now, the prior uh, definition of myocardial infarction said that troponin release was restricted to those situations in which myocardial necrosis had taken place, um, cell death that is. However, there have been some studies now which have suggested that this is not entirely true and that cardiac troponin can be released by intact and still functional cardiomyocytes in the context of things like myocardial stretch or uh, which can be induced through tachycardias. Um, or perhaps indeed even through um, other physiological stresses. And this is where the, the difficulty with uh, myocardial injury uh, actually comes in, because we don't know if, if all of these patients who are classifying as myocardial infarction have a true myocardial infarct, or whether this simply reflects a stress response. And can we zoom down now a little bit more onto some of the controversial areas that you, you just mentioned? So the difference perhaps between a type 2 myocardial infarction and this concept of myocardial injury. Um, in the paper, you give a couple of very nice real-world clinical examples of patients where you come down on one side of the fence or the other. Can you talk a bit, a little bit more about that for the audience as to how they might approach 
patients with, with these two distinct entities and also perhaps the, the incidence of type 2 MI and injury? Okay, so the third universal definition, first of all, would state that in order to diagnose myocardial infarction, a patient has to have either symptoms of ischemic chest pain or signs of myocardial ischemia on the electrocardiogram in the context of elevated cardiac troponin concentration, which is above the 99th centile reference range for that assay. And there should also be a rise and, and a fall in cardiac troponin. So those components are required to make a diagnosis of myocardial infarction. That would, of course, refer exclusively to the type 2 MI rather than injury. That is exactly right, yes. So for a diagnosis of type 2 MI, you require those prior components in the context of supply-demand imbalance, whereas myocardial injury is said to exclusively occur when a patient does not have symptoms or signs of myocardial ischemia, but they do have an elevation in cardiac troponin. So hopefully you can appreciate that's quite a subjective distinction. The electrocardiograms often are borderline. Patients may have symptoms, may have atypical symptoms, or you know, on occasion may be unconscious, such as those who are in the intensive care department. And therefore, this is a, a subjective classification. And there is a lack of, of real objective criteria to aid the clinician in making this distinction. And I think the examples we gave, um, one was a patient who presented with a, a pulmonary embolism who often would have an elevation in cardiac troponin. And indeed, we know troponin is prognostic in pulmonary embolism. And the European uh, Thoracic Society recommend that, that we check troponin for prognosis in these patients. However, the exact mechanism of troponin release in that patient may be multifactorial. It could be to do with uh, increased right ventricular pressures as a result of a large uh, pulmonary embolism, which is central. It could be to do with tachycardia. It could be to do with hypotension. It could be to do with hypoxia. And this is the, the challenge of the, of the diagnostic criteria in their current form, is that in order for a diagnostic label to actually be useful to a patient or to a clinician, we believe it should either infer some prognostic information or perhaps should guide the clinician better as to how they might manage that individual patient. Whereas the guideline as it currently stands may tell you that your patient is at increased risk of adverse outcome, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what, if anything, you should do to investigate that patient or indeed what treatments perhaps you could offer to improve their outcome. Okay. And are you making any suggestions as to how the guidelines could be improved, or do you know if there's another version on the way? Well, it's a, it's a controversial area, and one of the difficulties is there, there is no consensus. So what we tried to do in our article is to give clinicians a pragmatic overview of how they might investigate a patient who has symptoms or signs of myocardial ischemia in the context of another acute illness. And, and in particular, we looked at, at type 2 MI and, and myocardial injury and how we might investigate those patients further. So... This is our position, and it's, it's the position of, of some other experts in the field. However, we're aware that, that there is no one unified, accepted um, position globally. And we know the fourth universal definition of myocardial infarction is due to be released in 2018. And this is one of the areas that they are, they are focusing on to try and give clinicians further guidance. Excellent. Try and bring some clarity. Um, I mean, certainly it's a very pragmatic approach, and um, I'll put a link to the, to the paper in the in the show notes so people can go and read the paper and it's also open access so it's a free download for all. Just finally Andrew I wanted to touch on an intriguing sentence that you mentioned in the paper talking about troponin as a prognostic marker in different forms of heart disease for example valvular heart disease some forms of heart failure and this is out, out with the context of an MI because we have here 
patients with serially elevated levels of troponin. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I know that your group's been leading the, the way in bringing this to the, uh, to the minds of clinicians. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And one of the things we're becoming increasingly aware of is the idea that cardiac troponins should no longer be considered a positive or a negative test just for myocardial infarction. But they can actually be considered a continuous predictor of cardiovascular risk. Now, that applies to those patients who are known to have underlying conditions. And I think the example we quoted was a paper by Calvin Chin in aortic stenosis in the European Heart Journal. And they showed that increasing troponin concentrations were associated with um, replacement fibrosis and remodeling. And indeed, that this could be potentially used as a mechanism to to track disease progression in aortic stenosis to allow intervention at an earlier stage. And one of the senior colleagues at the Edinburgh Institute, Dr. Mark Dweck, is due to be leading a, a trial um, on that very area and um, looking at troponin as a, as a predictor of um, when it might be best to intervene in patients with aortic stenosis. And the really interesting area, um, which we think will become more important over the next 10 to 15 years, is the role of cardiac troponin in primary prevention. And Professor Mills has recently published a large paper showing that cardiac troponin may be used as a, a primary prevention risk stratification tool. Again, interestingly, with a threshold of around five nanograms per litre, um, it seems to predict the risk of future adverse cardiovascular outcomes. And whether troponin offers the primary clinician an opportunity to, to intervene and modify that risk is a subject that we'll be looking into in greater detail in the coming years. Yeah, and also whether whether it perhaps goes down uh, in response to treatment or not. Absolutely, yeah. And, and Professor Mill's paper showed that nicely using the WASCOPS trial, which is a randomised trial conducted in Glasgow. And they showed that in patients who received statin therapy, cardiac troponin concentrations could fall. And if they did fall, these patients were at lower risk of future cardiovascular events. So it may be that in patients with active coronary artery disease, we are seeing low levels of cardiac troponin, which are still within the normal reference range, just to be clear, uh, however, are higher than you might anticipate for a patient of that age. And it may be that if these troponin concentrations are modifiable, we have a, a very promising marker for evidence of response to treatment in cardiovascular disease. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. And as you say, I think it's going to develop with the more widespread adoption of the higher sensitivity assays across the, across the US as well as Europe. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew, for uh, your insights today. As I say, I will put the link to the open access paper in the show notes, and I encourage everybody to, uh, to go and read it. Thank you very much to everybody else for joining us uh, on this episode of The Heart Podcast. Mm-hmm.